Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. What do you? What is your take on everything that's happening right now? Are you kind of glued to the television and the coverage, or are you kind of uh, filtering some of it out? I don't watch too much local news, mm-hmm. um, but I watch a lot of national news, and I read a lot, and I listen to a lot of books on tape. As far as this goes, it's it's kind of I'm waiting. I'm on the sidelines waiting in the sense that um, it's it's such a it's this is a crucible of change. And I, I really, I remember this stuff um, back in uh, the Vietnam War era. I remember coming home one day and my dad being upset that I'd been out protesting and closed down Harvard. And he said, uh, and he says, okay, so you closed down the one place where the free market of ideas exists. You didn't go to Raytheon. You didn't go to Dow Chemical. You went to Harvard. He said, are you a moron? Have I, have I raised you with any common sense? You know, so um, I, I, as far as the stuff I'm seeing now, I see it as um, much more, much more, I don't want to say prominent. I see it, I see it as much more uh, probable that something's going to change. But as I always tell my kids, the pendulum always overswings. So when mm. you have the Me Too movement is a good example. Now people can't tell a woman that she has nice shoes on without fear of some retribution. But that's the price you pay for years and years of, of people, you know, being ostriches to the inequities that women have faced. So I'm, I'm, I don't think it's going to overswing here, but I, it's, it's got it's incremental change. And I don't know if people have the patience for that after week after week after the woman in Louisville after Freddie Gray in, in Baltimore, after the guy in Atlanta. I mean, there's just this woman bland yanked out of her car last year here in Texas. And, you know, just crazy stuff after after the guy getting Castro getting shot in his car in front of his kids. It, yet nobody seems to have a problem with that. I just did an mm-hmm. argument with someone this morning on Facebook, an old girlfriend of mine, and, uh, and she's talking about... Um, uh, if you're letting your kids go out and protest, you failed epically as a parent. And, and she's, you know, she's talking about the idea of of not um, of not participating. And I and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to, you know, corral my thoughts and not just shoot from the lip there. But you know, if you cre- if you let a vacuum exist, you shouldn't be surprised by what occupies it eventually. Mm-hmm. And so when I see this thing and systemic racism when this cop has 18 charges two of which ever get adjudicated and even those get dismissed it's not just police that you have to talk about it's the process it's the system it's all the kind of components that come together to form this amalgamation of and i don't want to say it in in such a disparating way because it's not just an amalgamation of things that don't work there's a calcification of everything that goes into what makes up our society, but you become inured to it when mm-hmm. you see it constantly. You see, you know, like Rodney King. I remember sitting in a newsroom in Kalamazoo when that verdict came down, and I jumped up out of my seat. I was so shocked. 
they changed the venue from downtown L.A. out to Simi Valley, which has a huge quotient of retired cops living in it for the jury pool. And I said, I don't care. We've got it on videotape. He's not going to escape this time. And then they exonerated. And I jumped out of my chair in the newsroom. I'm sitting there with my news director and a couple of EPs. And I said, I hope they burn that damn town down tonight. And they looked at me like I was a god, like they were a god. And they mm-hmm. said, Wilson, that's your hometown. I said, I don't care, man. We're fed up. We're fed, fed up. And so I'm hoping that this, because of the makeup of the crowd and the protesters and the sincerity and the kind of weariness of the crowd, I think there's going to be some significant change, if nothing, if on nothing else, on a self-serving basis, that you're stopping commerce that you're causing damage, that you're shooting police overtime through the roof. Mm -hmm. But if it's peaceful change, we've seen it before. We've seen it with Gandhi. We've seen it with King. We haven't really gotten change with L.A. riots. We haven't really gotten change with Rodney King. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is kind of a hybrid and uh, something will come of it. But yeah, I'm glued to it. Waco Loud and Rogue Media Network, this is Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story. I'm your guide and host, Travis Scott, and I will be taking you on a tour of the life and accomplishments of the greatest producer you've never heard of. Previously, we began a four-part episode arc we are referring to as the Music Factory years. Between the years 1963 and 1968, a mere five years, Tom's name would appear on the back of 69 records. At the beginning of part one, we saw Tom start to unpack his overflowing skills as an A&R man for Columbia Records and put them to use to help produce three full-length albums and one heck of a well-known tune for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Bob Dylan. Tom and Dylan part ways in 1965, but it is clear that both men had a lasting effect on each other's catalog of work moving forward. Tom's insistence on backing Dylan's eclectic folk style with other plugged-in musicians would send both men down incredible roads. For this series, we'll continue to walk alongside our friend Tom Wilson. In 1964, Tom is a busy man. He is juggling a schedule that includes not just blooming mega-musician Bob Dylan, but also acts like the great John Coltrane, as well as a soundtrack for the revitalized historic Broadway musical, West Side Story, just in a few. But it's in March that Tom would cross paths with a duo who originally went by a few different names, including Tom and Jerry, Kane and Gar, and finally, with the divine intervention of God, aka Goddard Lieberson, 
would land on the name Simon and Garfunkel. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Class of 1990 inductees Simon and Garfunkel is fronted by the longtime friends Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Paul and Art would meet while attending junior high in Queens, New York in the 1950s. Soon after, they would form the doo-wop group The Peptones and would cut their teeth performing at school dances. In 1957, while still in high school, they would sign an independent deal with Big Records under the name Tom and Jerry. Channeling the Everly Brothers with their single, Hey Schoolgirl, the then 16-year-olds would get their first taste of success at an impressive position on the Billboard Top Hits at number 49. It would not be until this duo goes under the name Simon and Garfunkel that they see this type of success again. We sock hop, skip, and jump to 1963, where Paul has freshly graduated from City College of New York, and Art is studying art history at Columbia. The two would reconnect to perform at a Greenwich Village open mic as Kane and Gar. It's here where the future legends would catch the ear of Tom Wilson. At the time, Tom is still with Columbia Records, and he would frequent these clubs scouting out talent. This would be the preferred method for how Tom would collect young talent for the bulk of his career. You see, Tom believed that you had to go out and find talent. You didn't just wait for it to wander in. That was just part of being a good producer. In 1968, on Tom's aptly named radio program, The Music Factory, he talks with talent scout Artie Rip about how Rip had discovered the Love and Spoonful. Tom reflects on this process and why it's a better way to find talent rather than to have the talent find you. You know, I just to... Uh, it reminds me of the fact that I used to uh, work at an organization uh, that I won't mention, and uh, a lot of the A&R men had the idea that what an A&R man was supposed to do, or produce, I'll use both terms, was to just sit in his office with the door open waiting for some sort of creative director to come in holding a piece of talent by the throat and fling it on your desk, and then you record. But I think that anybody who can't find talent and uh, who can't develop talent and... Uh, uh, who can't be a judge of, of what he wants to work with uh, in terms of talent uh, doesn't deserve the name of producer in our business. Uh, I think then you're, you're just a, another sort of blank-faced technician. Yeah, that's really what it turns out. Paul Simon and Tom had actually met previously when Paul was trying to sell some of his songs with the hopes of having larger artists play the music. One of the labels was Columbia, and Tom's interest was piqued. He had the British band The Pilgrims in mind to play one of Paul's tunes, but now Paul had something more grand in mind, and he convinced Tom to let him and Art audition in studio instead. After playing for Tom, the two are brought before God and are signed with Columbia Records. In March of 1964, 
Tom would bring in Simon and Garfunkel to record their debut full-length album, Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., which included their generation-defining song, The Sound of Silence. Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence As well as a cover of a familiar tune from Tom's repertoire, The Times, They Are A-Changing. The album release was an incredible and spectacular failure. During its 1964 release, the album sold an astonishingly low 3,000 copies. Shell-shocked by the album's minimal success, the two felt maybe their music career as a duo would be no more. Art headed back to Columbia, and Paul Jett set across the pond to England to pursue a solo career. After a few months, there was some life and traction happening with The Sound of Silence on college radio stations in Boston and Gainesville, Florida. When Tom heard this, he saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to do a wider release of the single, but he felt it was too soft of a tune for that, and the electric light goes off once more. Using session musicians from Bob Dylan's previous recordings, Tom backs up their haunting vocals with drums and electric guitars, and decidedly added an echo to the whole song. All and Art are, of course, completely unaware of this, but with a newly mixed cut of their song, Columbia Records releases the single in September of 1965. The new version of the song was met with incredible and spectacular success. It first crept its way down the radios of the eastern seaboard before spreading across the nation. Later in the fall, Paul was still in Europe and found himself in Denmark performing in small clubs when, at one point, he picks up a copy of Billboard and is shocked to find his name on the charts. It was no misprint. Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sound of Silence, had, unknown to the duo, gone the equivalent of going viral due to the heads-up genius of Tom Wilson. A few days later, Art phones Paul to tell him why their song is exploding stateside. Initially and unsurprisingly, Paul was not a fan of the new version. In an interview with the two, Paul talks about the origins of The Sound of Silence and Tom's contribution to the song. I wrote it when I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I wrote it in the bathroom of our house in Queens and uh, with the lights off and the water running. That's, was, that was the atmosphere that I liked. If you put a candle in there, then you know, you'll immediately understand what it's, what it's like. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that song and at that point I was, I, was e I had either graduated from college or I was in my last year, and I was working part-time for a publisher in New York, trying to get songs from their catalog recorded by other recording artists, a job that I was completely unqualified to do. Mm -hmm. And 
in the course of my going around to record companies, I met this fellow, Tom Wilson, at Columbia Records. And he had a group that he was recording called The Pilgrims. The only great artist that he had was Bob Dylan. So I said to him, well, I have a song that I wrote that I think might be good for the pilgrims, you know. Mm -hmm. And I and I played the song Sound of Silence. And he said, oh, yeah, I'd like to record that with them. And then I said, well, you know, I sing, I sing with a friend, and could we come and sing this for you? So he, he said uh, yes, and he arranged an audition for us for Columbia Records. And when we went there, the engineer who was going to record our audition was Roy Halley, who became our engineer for the whole course of our career. So we sang three or four songs, and the president of Columbia Records was a, a very, very esteemed record man named Goddard Lieberson. Uh, famous, mostly, his fame derived from uh, the fact that he was a, a classically trained composer. So he signed us to Columbia. This was the president of Columbia signed us. It's important to keep that in mind. And he gave us to Tom Wilson, who was the logical person, because that's the person that I auditioned for. And then we made our album of... Uh, uh, our first album, which was called Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., and The Sound of Silence was one of the songs on the album, and probably the one that we consider to be the best, because it was, in our in the, the few performances that we did, you could tell that it was it was the best. And much to our kind of amazement, they signed us to Columbia Records, which was the most prestigious label at the time. So we went from having last recorded this little teenage song on big records, then to a hi hiatus where we both went to college. And uh, and then when we, we, when we came back, um, we were signed to Columbia Records. Now, we weren't. they weren't going to call us Tom and Jerry, which the first record company gave us as a name. Uh, and the question was, what, do, what are you going to call this group? And there was a duo called Art and Paul, that's a folk duo. So that was out. So then, you know, they were tossing out different names that they might come up with to give to us. And it was no, it was never a consideration to call the group Simon and Garfunkel because it was too ethnic. It was just nobody did that. Nobody did that then. Bob Dylan was called Bob Dylan. He wasn't called Bob Zimmerman. So when they came to a stalemate and couldn't find the name, it was Goddard Lieberson who said, call the group Simon and Garfunkel. And that's our story. We put out this album. It wasn't a hit. And uh, I went away to, to sing and uh, uh, I went away to live in England and to sing by myself in England. And when, while I was away, uh, a, a radio station, I'm just repeating Artie now, now, the radio stations in uh, Gainesville, Florida, and in Boston started to get uh, phone requests for this acoustic version of The Sound of Silence. So Tom Wilson, the producer, who was at that time Bob Dylan's producer, brought in 
and Bob Dylan had now become had now turned from folk to folk rock. So he brought in the musicians that played on the Dylan sessions, and he overdubbed drums and electric 12-string guitar and bass onto our original recording, which was two voices and a guitar. And they released that record, and that record uh, gradually, you know, climbed up the charts until it became a number one record. Art Garfunkel recounts his experience in finding out about the new version and the following rise to fame. When I came home in the summer of 65, I found that one of the songs from the album that Paul and I had recorded for Columbia Records the year prior, mm -hmm. the album being Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., and the song being a folky version of The Sound of Silence, Two Voices, One Guitar, mm -hmm. that song was getting a lot of response from radio stations and callers calling, people calling in in the Florida area, and it would persist through month after month until they called New York and said, we think you should put it out as a single, and that's why Tom Wilson, the producer of Columbia, took the sounds of silence and added a bass, a drum, an electric 12-string guitar, the fashionable sound of that year, mm -hmm. and then played it for me when I came home from Europe in September of 65. And I was just, you know, amused. I was not so invested in whether it'll be successful or not. I was feeling like a veteran of failure at that point. So I was just amused and then I watched my life change over the ensuing months. The Sound of Silence would battle the Beatles song, We Can Work It Out, for the top spot on the charts during the first part of 1966. Because of the song's success, Paul would be called home to record a new Simon and Garfunkel album at Columbia's request. To try and capitalize on the song's success, the album was titled The Sounds, Plural, of Silence. Tom's only contribution to the album would be the track, The Sounds of Silence, and after that, the three never worked together again. I am alone, from my window to the streets below, on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. So at the close of 1966, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek is running on NBC. Space, a final frontier. The first observance of Kwanzaa holiday is celebrated. The Beatles have performed their last concert. Simon and Garfunkel have three hits on the top 100 list, putting them on a trajectory to becoming one of, if not the, most well-known duo in the history of rock and roll. So, as we through this collection of stories, deepen our understanding of Tom and how he thinks. I would like to believe that he 
would not have rested on his laurels of the dramatic success of Simon and Garfunkel thanks to his reimagining of Sound of Silence. I have to wonder exactly what it was he saw in that open mic in Greenwich Village, but, you know, whatever it was, they had it. And he knew that he needed to get it for both him and for the duo. He was essentially just doing what any good factory foreman would do when something is not working properly. He gets it fixed or he fixes it himself. episode of Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story, we continue with part three of the Music Factory years, and we learn about how a song about the Watts riots gives birth to another iconic rock group, the Mothers of Invention, fronted by East Coast guitarist Frank Zappa. This podcast is produced by Rogue Media Network. Our executive producers are Lindsay Littman, Zach Burke, Jacob Green, and Katie Selman. Our director is Mike Hamilton. Our theme music is by the Bowleys. Join us for the next installment of Invisible Icon, The Tom Wilson Story. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.